Thank you for joining us for this chapel message from the campus of Columbia International University in Columbia, South Carolina. Our mission at CIU is to educate people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. Good afternoon, friends. Great to see you. Andre, thanks for the introduction. You guys awake? <laughs> you see that schedule and you think after lunch and you think, well, at least I'll be standing and staying awake. All right, so let's, I have an idea. Let's talk about Donald Trump. What do you think? I'm kidding. Let's, let's talk about COVID. Quarantines, masks? No, we're not going to go there. Okay, how about complementarianism, men and women's roles in the church? You want to make a dinner party interesting, raise that topic. Now, these three topics all came to mind as I was thinking through different controversies of the day because they've impacted me. I've had conversations with friends just in the last week or two, and in those conversations, I found myself getting annoyed, frustrated, because these friends of mine don't have my wisdom. Right? Last week I was texting with a, a brother, a friend, and, and uh, he was saying things about Trump and I'm, I could feel the fire rising up in me. And I was just like, I don't even wanna to talk to you. This is a Christian brother. We agree on 98% of stuff. I don't wanna to talk to you. Last Sunday night, several friends and I we're texting, a little text chain about uh, uh, an article on complementarianism that another person we know had written. And one of the guys on the text chain was supporting the article and I didn't like the article. And again, I found myself deeply frustrated. I, I, was, I was packing for this trip and I'd hear my phone ding on the shelf I'm like, just ignore it. I go over, look at it, I'm like, ah, come on. You know? It's like, just okay, don't answer, just, just leave it alone, walk away. It'd ding again. Ah. You ever done, you ever done that? The topic for this session is how do we respond to disagreements in the church in a post pandemic world? How do we respond to disagreements in the church in a post-pandemic world? Now, now when you sent that invitation, and James 4, James 4 and that title, um, when you sent that, I thought, okay, they want me to talk about political divisions. So that, that's kind of what I'm going to talk about. And they said post-pandemic world, that's how I interpreted you. Maybe I was wrong, but that's, so David, that's what you're going to get. I wrote a little booklet with Andy Nacelli called How to Love Church Members Amidst Political Disagreements how to love church members amidst political disagreements. And yet here I am 
having these conversations deeply frustrated. Apparently the book wasn't very good. <laughs> I'm kidding, it's great, you should buy copies. Um, speaking of, another book a friend of mine just wrote called Love the Ones Who Drive You Crazy, Eight Truths for Pursuing Unity in the Church by Jamie Dunlop. Love the Ones Who Drive You Crazy, Eight Truths for Pursuing Unity in the Church. Anybody want it? First hand I saw. There we go. So I, I was passing out books in our, our small group and in my, in my house, our you know, community group. And I'm like, anybody want this book? Love the ones who drive you crazy. My wife's like, <laughs> seriously, honey? It's about the church, okay? Sincerely, the political and cultural disagreements we encounter both inside and outside the church, I, I don't need to tell you, they cause frustrations, they cause division within the church, there's other types of divisions we could talk about uh, looking at and different kinds of quarreling and fights we could talk about from James 4, 1 to 12, which we're going to do. But I'm going I'm to try to ex explain James 4, the first 12 verses, and apply it specifically in this domain, okay? That's, that's my plan, political disagreement in the church. And I think we can divide these, four, these, these 12 verses into four basic points. Go ahead and turn there if you haven't already. Point number one. If you're a note taker, point number one, our fights and quarrels root in our passions and desires. Our fights and our quarrels root in our passions and our desires. That's verses one to three. James starts with a question. What causes quarrels and fights? What causes fights among you? And he answers, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? And the you, within you, is, is plural. So he's not talking about, you know, internal passions in my heart, you know, me with myself. No, no, you, the church, there's, there's passions at war within you, the congregation. That's why you fight and quarrel. Indeed, I, he, he, children, children provide an easy illustration of this, of course. They both want the toy, so they fight. We can see that. But, but, but James has adults in mind. He has a church in mind. And friends, doesn't, doesn't verse 2 basically tell us the history, the political history of the world since at least Genesis 4, Cain killing Abel? In other words, name a war in which James 4, 2 did not apply, or a border dispute, or the rise and fall of a nation, or the enslavement of a people, or the arguments occurring inside of Congress, or at the House of Commons, or so much of what we see on social media, and so many lawsuits after lawsuits, and divorce trials after divorce trial. Is it, is it not James 4, 2? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covenant and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Verse 2 is fallen politics. Yeah, keep in mind, James is talking to Christians here, right? And, and so he continues with his explanation of quarreling in a slightly different light in verse 3, or at the end of verse 2. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. You, do, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. It's as if he's saying, well, so what, why don't you ask the Lord for what you need? Oh, wait, 
You know why you don't ask the Lord for what you need, because you know you just want to spend it on your passions. You're kind of keeping it to yourself then. That's what he's saying. Uh, He doesn't call them worldly passions in verse 3, but verse 4 clarifies that. That's what he's talking about when he's referring to friendship with the world. See, these are worldly passions. Yeah, here, here's why I think it's hard for us to see the relevance of, the, of these verses and the indictment of worldly passions when it comes to our politics. Politics is fundamentally concerned with matters of justice in our lives together. And people who have been justified by Christ should, by virtue of that justification, care about justice. Christians care about justice, as they should. So when your fellow church member disagrees with you over the election or abortion or mass incarceration or immigration or the nature of marriage or welfare policy or COVID or whatever it is that you're disputing about, your instincts tell you, in that disagreement, your instincts are telling you, well, that's injustice. Why are you standing up for justice? You're a Christian. Christians don't stand up for injustice. Why are you standing up for injustice? And so what that does is that invokes lightly frustration in its grown form, anger towards this person who disagrees with you politically. That's the result. And what is anger? Anger is the God-given emotion for injustice. You see a child being abused, you get angry. You should get angry. Because what does anger do? Anger opposes. Anger seeks to destroy. So you see an injustice, and what do you want to do? You want to stop it. You want to oppose it. You want to destroy it. So there is a right, God-given place for anger, right? And that's in response to injustice. So what happens, again, when you disagree with your fellow members on these political matters, you you think you're doing an injustice. You're, You're supporting an injustice. How can you do that and call yourself a follower of Christ? And then we get into it. That's what happens. So, okay, so may, maybe James 4 isn't relevant to Christian political engagements and discussion after all. Oh, that, that fighting and quarreling, that's, you know, that's other stuff. But not our politics. We should fight and quarrel, is it? Is that the conclusion? I, I, don't, I don't think so. As I said, verse 2 describes so much of the history of politics in the world, and we Christians fall into that too. Don't deny it. Okay, so how do we apply this text to our present moment and to our political battles? How, how do we put it together? Okay, may, maybe, here's a solution. May, maybe the simple thing to do is to make a distinction between two kinds of issues. You might say whole church issues around which we unite that depend on what I would call straight line judgments, and let's say Christian freedom issues that depend on what I would call jagged judgments. I'm going to take a tangent away from James 4 right now, okay? So we've been on the trail of James 4. I'm going to take a tangent. It's going to be a long tangent, and I'll let you know when we're back, all right? Two kinds of issues politically for Christians to think about. And I think it's an important distinction. We have whole church issues, that is to say, issues that are necessary for the whole church to believe, and we unite together around 
those issues. They're the issues that make a church a church, things that you would find in your statement of faith, things like, of course, the gospel most centrally, and an affirmation of repentance and faith. These are whole church issues belong in that bucket, right? Meanwhile, we have other kinds of issues. We could call them Christian freedom issues. These are issues that are maybe important. They may be morally significant, maybe even tremendously so. This is not Wheaties versus Cheerios. These are morally significant issues. Nonetheless, we're not quite ready to say a Christian must with these issues, that they belong in the Christian freedom bucket, right? We won't treat them as conditions for church membership, much less salvation. We're going to leave space for Christians to disagree on these issues. The two categories make sense, pretty straightforward, right? Whole church issues and Christian freedom issues. A Christian must believe the gospel. A Christian may or may not homeschool. You know, that's a Christian freedom issue. One more thing on each, each side. A whole church issue depends on what I would call a straight line judgment. That is to say there's a straight line between the biblical text and our policy application. Okay? So, biblical text. All people are made in God's image. Policy application. Anything supporting inequality, racism is wrong. Biblical text. I was created for, from my mother's womb. You shall not murder. Straight line to policy application. Abortion is sin. Okay? Straight line judgments lead to whole church issues. Meanwhile, your Christian freedom issues bucket depends on what I would call jagged line judgment. Think of health care policy. Suppose a Christian wants to argue for universal health care says it's a human right. And suppose he starts by making ethical claims about human rights as a biblical ideal, or a biblical idea rather. But from there, the argument has to move back and forth down a jagged path, satisfactorily answering multiple questions on which Christians might disagree, what services would be covered, at what cost of the taxpayers, what would the economic trade-offs be, and are those just? What if the standards of care dramatically drop, such that people cannot receive life-giving treatment? With questions like these and so many others, it's hard to say that this is the Christian position. Christians are going to reasonably disagree on all of these different questions when it comes to, say, universal health care, right? And when they disagree, that doesn't make them less Christian or, or substandard Christians. It's a jagged line judgment and a Christian freedom issue. I, I remember once asking an acquaintance, in fact, he was, a, he was a political science professor at a Christian university. I said, would you say you actually know Jesus' opinion on health care and tax policy? And he's like, yeah, I do. I was like, wow, you're an apostle. That's amazing. God revealed that to you, huh? I, I don't think so, friend. I don't think so. But he believed he, he, believed he held the 
biblical position, the Christian, the only Christian position on healthcare and tax policy. I'm just I'm sorry. The, the, the Bible has not revealed itself that clearly on those issues. And you can build your position on those issues from Scripture, that's fine, but don't bind other Christian consciences and say you must with them. It's not that kind of issue. And I do believe it's valuable, even crucial for Christians and churches and pastors to recognize the distinction between these two buckets, between straight line judgments culminating in whole church convictions and jagged line judgments culminating in Christian freedom convictions. When you don't, you're tempted to treat everything in that first bucket. You're going to raise the volume on all of your conversations. You're going to risk tearing apart a friendship, a small group, even a church. And I think remembering this basic distinction helps lower the temperature on so many of our conversations by reminding ourselves we're free to disagree on this topic and still come to the Lord's table together. Okay, this brother disagrees with me on Trump. Oh. Okay, can I come to the Lord's table with him? Do we share the gospel in common? Even if we have different understandings of how the gospel is going to work itself out, its implications in our lives and the judgments we make. I'm not an apostle. I, I, my opinions are not Bible. Okay, so I think recognizing this distinction is extremely important for living together amidst political disagreement in the church. I think it will help us survive in a post-pandemic culture. Okay, that's, that's the end of the tangent. I told you a long tangent. We're going to come back to that. That's the end of the ta tangent. Back to James 4. Maybe I'm saying, okay, maybe, just maybe, James is saying, okay, it's fight to find a fight and quarrel over here in these kinds of issues. Man, the Bible speaks it. I'm going to stand on it. I'm going to fight on this hill. I'm going to die on it. I'm going to come after you. Is that what he's saying? Whereas over, you know, over here in these Christian freedom issues, no, it's not. Okay, I'm going I'm to chill out a bit. Is that, is that what James would have us do? Does that sound right? No. I don't think that's the lesson we're to take from James 4. I don't think he's concerned with the kinds of issues we're discussing. I think he's concerned with the posture of our hearts no matter what issues we are discussing, uh, discussing whether straight line or jagged line issues. Verse 2 and 3, you desire, you covet, you ask wrongly, spend it on your passions. He's not talking about the issues, he's talking about our hearts. Our worldly passions can infect us even when we're fighting for truth and justice. Okay, go back to that conversation I had with my friend over complementarianism. So, okay, so there I am. I'm, I'm packing for the trip. I hear my phone beep. I, I, I wait a minute. I can't, can't help myself. I go over there. I read it again. I look at it. And I'm like, he's saying the same thing again. He's saying the same thing 14 times. This, this guy is not listening to me. I understand perfectly what he's saying. He doesn't seem to understand what I'm saying. I'm rehearsing in my head. I just go, I put it down. I go downstairs. I get some water. I don't respond. Just, just leave it alone, Jonathan. No, I got to respond. <laughs> I got to respond. So I, I pick up my phone. And sometimes, sometimes I, I find it cathartic to 
just like write the email even though I know I'm not going to send it or write the text even though I'm not going to send it. It's not a good idea. It's like, I, I know I'm an alcoholic, but I can just go sit in the bar. No, it's just, but what, what, but okay, so there I am. I'm just, I'm going to write this text. Brother, you said the same thing. This is what I wrote. Brother, you said the same things 14 times in a row. I get it. The article's not complicated. Yeah, thank you for explaining it to me over and over. I'm simply suggesting there's another angle by which we might view this topic. Snark much, Jonathan? Am I simply suggesting? No, I'm not simply suggesting. I'm trying to win. I'm trying to prove he's wrong. I'm trying to prove I know better than you. That, that, that's what I'm simply doing. I want the satisfaction of proving myself smarter, more on top of the issues at play. Friends, we are not computers. We are not calculators rationally calculating various moral and political equations objectively. We don't do that. We have passion. We have spirit. And too often that passion, that spirit is worldly. And so we quarrel and we fight. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Here's the deal. Even as Christians, we are simultaneously justified and sinful. Uh, you guys know that. Our motives are mixed, every one of us. Our motives are mixed. Yes, by God's grace, His common grace, and even by His saving grace. Increasingly, we care about truth and justice for good, righteous, God-glorifying, love-neighbor reasons. Nonetheless, those good motives are mixed in still too often with bad motives. We're complicated, aren't we? We can fight for truth and justice for God's sake, and yet at the same time, a kind of godlessness, even anti-God motive can motivate our hearts. And that's where James goes next. Point one, our fights and quarrels root in our passions and desires. Here's point two. Point two, our worldly passions make us enemies of God. Our worldly passions make us enemies of God. Look at verses four and five. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? There's only two ways to live. Friendship with the world, friendship with God. And to love the one is to hate the other. And Jesus says something about that. Therefore, James continues, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Okay, so, so there I am at the, at the refrigerator. I'm, I'm filling up my water glass. My mind is conflicted. It's spinning over whether or not to respond. I know. My conscience is telling me, Jonathan, this is your ego. This is your ego. Don't listen to your ego. You don't win anything when you act according to your pride, your vanity, your ego. Walk away. Let, let, let your friend get the better of you. Let him win. It'll be good for you in the long run. Good for your heart. Yet I walk back upstairs and I type that text. What am I doing? I'm saying no to the conscience that the Lord has given me. 
I'm telling God that I know better than he does. I'm acting like the world. I'm acting like, according to this verse, an enemy of God. Uh, I don't know you knew, but you invited an enemy of God here too often. You're thinking, what else can I do with my afternoon? This one small text conversation between two friends who more or less disagree is not a big deal in some ways. Who, Who cares, right? Yet, isn't this what verse 2 is about? Isn't it the seed of murder that's beginning right there in my heart? Doesn't Jesus say, if you, if you even hate a brother, you've, you're guilty of murder? And so what I'm trying to help us as Christians understand, let's beware of those little seeds that are, are starting to rise up in our hearts. As I said, we're not computers, we're not calculators rationally evaluating these moral and political equations, we are too often spiritual, spiritually opposed against God. And and that's what the verse here, especially verse 5, tells us. Our, Our spirits are at work against the Spirit. God is saying, I've purchased them, and yet they are still working against me. How are you doing on social media? Now, some Christians on social media behave themselves wonderfully, commendably. They encourage others. At the same time, too often it's easy on social media to act like non-Christians. We engage in foolish, ignorant controversies, controversies that might be over important issues of the day, but we're letting them distract us from loving God and loving neighbor. Satan is clever. He's very clever. When somebody becomes a Christian, he teaches them how to put on camouflage. Let let me show you how to enjoy passions of the flesh, but in a religious guise, a Christian guy. You care about truth and justice, right? Well, that's good. Good for you. You care about truth and justice. I'm, I'm proud of you. Unlike those people over there, they're against truth and justice. They're, they're ruining, every, ruining everything. Not like you. You're good. You're commendable. You should be in charge. They shouldn't be. You should be in charge. Because you're a Christian. And you care about truth and justice. Unlike those bad people. Do you, do you see how he puts on the camouflage? And what's going on in my heart? My heart's like, yeah, I am pretty good. I, am pre- I do care about truth and justice, unlike those terrible people. Look at me. You see how clever he is. Here's a, here's a tragic dynamic, tragic and ironic dynamic I've observed in the fight for truth or for justice. It begins well. It quickly sours. Truth people see the destructive force of falsehood and, and, and they burn to correct it, and that's good. And justice people see the destructive force of oppression and abuse and, and they burn to protect people from further hurt, and that's good. Yet they become proud. 
And soon enough, there's no fight we won't pick, no injustice we won't address, like the parent who corrects every conceivable error and makes no allowances for weakness. We slam down the gavel with the full force of the law. We verbally lash the friend with a pristine recitation of God's Word. We scorn our political opponents with right invocations of Justice, we turn into Pharisees. And so our biblically correct truths and our right demands for justice reek of self-righteousness and contempt. This is the husband who points to the Bible verse as he belittles his wife. The woman who knows just the right words to make her friends feel terribly guilty the professor on social media whose words drip with condescension condescension when he stands up for justice. The pastor who refuses to be questioned because he's the pastor. Let me, let me sum up what I said so far by saying our political and moral disagreements are not, again, merely intellectual matters. You're not just engaging your intellect. They are spiritual matters involving the Spirit. And unless, friend, you are 100% spiritual and sanctified, you and I are going to engage these conversations to some measure unspiritually, ungodly e. We camouflage our sinful passions. Therefore, how many friendships have we seen fall apart? How many churches have we seen divided in recent years. Am I telling you not to engage in political disagreements? Not at all. I am saying, be suspicious of yourself and engage them only carefully. How do we engage them carefully? Well, that brings us to point three. Point three, God will give grace if we humble and submit ourselves to God. God will give grace if we humble and submit ourselves to God. Look at verses six to 10, but he gives more grace. He gives more grace Okay, to whom does he give grace? Keep reading. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. To whom does he give grace? He gives it to the humble. Okay, so there you are, stuck in your fight over Trump or COVID or complementarianism or immigration reform, your views of God's sovereignty, any issue really. My ego's involved. I'm scorning the other person. What do I do? I recognize my need for grace, which means humbling myself. How do I humble myself? Verses 7 to 10, submit yourself therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Remember what I said about mixed motives? Double-mindedness. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Uh, friends, I, I don't know exactly who is here today. I assume most of you are Christians, but, but maybe somebody in the room this morning is, or this afternoon, would, would, you would not count yourself a Christian. And if that's you, well, how would you become a Christian? Well, you could read verses 7 to 10. You become a Christian by submitting yourself to God, fleeing the devil, drawing near to God, seeking forgiveness because you mourn your sin. And you humble yourself before the Lord. You, 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 you turn away from your sin and you turn to Christ. You follow after Him. And the forgiveness He gives and the life 
He leads us into as Lord. In other words, Christianity begins, friends, when you have reached the end of yourself and your resources, and you realize you are a sinner who deserves God's wrath. That's where Christianity—I deserve wrath? Yes. That's where Christianity begins. And you you don't come to the Lord with, look at my justice, look at my truth-telling, look at my good works. Uh, you, You come to the Lord and you say, look at my sin. And there's good news. Jesus came and lived the perfect life that we should have lived but did not, and then died on the cross the death that we should die but don't have to if we turn to Him, accept His sacrifice of atonement, repent, and follow after Him. And He rose from the dead, defeating the penalty of death, a penalty of sin, death. That, that, that is the beginning of Christianity. Again, if you're here this morning or this afternoon, you, you don't know Christ as your own Savior and your Lord, there's a bunch of people in here who would love to talk to you about it. I'd be happy to talk to you about it afterwards. Okay, now to the Christian in the room, however, and I assume that's most of us, notice James is giving this, here's how you become a Christian counsel to... Christians caught up in worldly quarreling. So to the Christian trolling on social media, to the Christian who despises a fellow church member for their politics, James says, enough of your smug, self-righteous posturing, enough of your boastful fighting, go back to the beginning. Go back to the gospel by which you became a Christian. That's what he is telling us. He's saying, repent and believe. Again, to quote, cleanse your hands, you sinners, weep and mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, said Christ. Stop playing God and humble yourself. Okay, so there I am disagreeing with a friend over COVID or over Trump or over complementarianism. My my blood is starting to boil. What do I do? There, There you are. Your blood is boiling. What do, you, what do you do? You're frustrated with a parent, a, a friend, another pastor over politics, politics. What do you do? You preach the gospel to yourself. You remember who you are, a sinner saved by grace alone. That's who we are. Your opinions on this political matter might be the correct opinions, but is your posture towards the person the right posture? Is your posture that of a forgiven sinner Who wants the person to whom you're speaking to know the same grace and forgiveness that you've known? Well, listen to Paul in 2 Timothy 2.24. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps lead them, grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Okay, so these are big errors that the person is making. They're, They're... they're heirs that take a person outside of the faith and yet correct them with gentleness. That's how he's to address that. Now, let's, let's apply this to moral and political issues. So, so last week, a, a prominent pastor said that Christians should not only go to transgender weddings, they should go and bring a gift. Now, I, I, I'm personally convicted that that is a significant error. As I look to God and God's Word, and as I prepare to stand before God on the final day of judgment, I I think He is wrong. Still, 
Picture me or picture yourself standing before God on that final day of judgment and picture that brother or sister with whom you disagree standing there with you. And now imagine for a second the Almighty says to you, okay, correct, correct him, correct her. There's God. There's you and the person with whom you disagree. God says to you, correct him. Do you, do you turn to that person and say, you idiot, what's wrong with you? Not if you know you're standing there by grace yourself. What do you do? You say, friend, I love you. I would understand, as I look to the word, I would understand you to be an error. And so may I urge you to, to reconsider your position by looking again to God's word. Now, and please understand, I'm not standing here as somebody who's over you or better than you. You and I both stand. His, his, his gaze penetrates me. He knows what I am. He knows, you know, I'm here by grace. And, and I, I want to invite you into that same grace with me. Beggar, you know, beggar pointing another beggar to bread sort of thing. You know, you know that line. And I, I'm, I'm seeking to have this discussion about disagreement with you in, in, in that gospel grounded, I'm here by what Christ did, posture. It's a different kind of posture. Is that being quarrelsome? I don't think so. I'm, I'm looking to the gospel, it strips us of, of pride and ego, doesn't it? We're not presuming to play God. Back in 2011, before the Supreme Court passed a Burgerfeld effectively legalizing same-sex marriage in this country, the Maryland State Senate was considering a, 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 a same-sex marriage bill. And in my understanding, that, that's a straight-line issue. That's a straight-line issue. There's a difference between criminalizing something and actually sponsoring or subsidizing something. And what marriage does, what marriage laws do is they actually sponsor, they, they subsidize a particular practice, right, by giving various benefits. And I don't believe that Christians should pass laws that sponsor and subsidize sin. What others might do or whatever others might think, we don't put our hands to it. And a member of my church was a state senator in, uh, in Maryland, and he was co-sponsoring the same-sex marriage bill. And so he and I sat down, and I said, Brother, I, let, me, let me read you something. And I, I read to him from Revelation 6. It says, The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves. And among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, from the wrath of the Lamb. Okay, so the kings, the generals, the people in political positions, running into mountains saying, fall on us mountains because the wrath of the Lamb is coming. And I said, well, why are these kings, why are these office holders desiring the rocks falling over the wrath of the Lamb? Well, because those kings did injustice because those kings put their hands to wickedness. Whether those kings believed in the Bible or not, that's what they did. And that's why the king of kings is coming to bring judgment now. I said, so, so, so brother, I, let me encourage you not to put your hand to anything 
that one day will bring the wrath of the Lamb. That will bring God's judgment. Now, it took a number of conversations, but what do you think that brother ultimately did? He got mad and said, Jonathan, you jerk. Who are you to tell me? Is that what he did? You, do you presume to give me advice? Well, no, that brother humbled himself before God. He remembered the gospel. Therefore, he, he, he uniformly engaged with me. As I was kind of bringing a little bit of heat, he uniformly engaged with me in charity and kindness. And ultimately, he withdrew his support from the same-sex marriage bill. He did not play judge, which impacted both his decision and the way he engaged with me. That brings us to a fourth and final point. Number four, do not speak evil or play judge against one another. Do not speak evil or play judge against one another. Look at verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Okay, so humbling yourself before God. Okay, the, the vertically oriented transaction will have a horizontal impact. The person who humbles himself before God in repentance and faith, does not speak evil of others, which means if you are speaking evil of others, you are undoing your humbling. You're undoing your repentance and faith. You're unrepenting, unfaithing. You, you, you are, by speaking evil of other Christians, you are being anti-gospel. But, but again, in case that's not even clear, James says it again. Okay, why, why shouldn't Christians speak evil against one another? He explains the rest of the verse. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of law. You're a judge. It's crazy. Did you, did you catch that? To speak evil against a brother is to judge a brother, he says. And to judge a brother... James goes on, speaks evil against God's law and makes one a judge over God's law. It's as if you're, you're ascending Mount Sinai like Moses. God hands his two tablets to you and you say, no, 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 God. Let me give you my tablets. You're not my judge. I'm your judge. Not only that, I find you evil. I judge the law is e your law is evil. My law is good. To speak evil against a brother is to do that. Isn't that what, am I exaggerating? Isn't that what verse 11 says? The one who speaks against a brother or judges a brother speaks against evil against the law and judges the law. What's James' response? Well, verse 12. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy? Now, who are you to judge your neighbor? And James' response clearly is, you're not the judge of heaven and earth, friend. Stop acting like it. Uh, so the question is, will we as Christians engage politically with each other like the world does? Or will we do it differently? I'm basically out of time. I have seven quick points in my conclusion about how to engage in love. I'll do it quick. How do we, how do, we do the opposite of what we're being warned against? 
How do we love church members with different politics? Number one, adjust your expectations. Adjust your expectations. The gospel does not automatically reserve our jagged line, wisdom-based political judgments. And rather, it helps us forbear with one another amidst those different judgments. It creates unity amidst diversity. I think of you know, Simon the zealot and Matthew the tax collector following after Jesus. Support Rome. No, don't support Rome. They're fighting. Jesus looking behind them at them. Guys. But they're united in Christ. Recommendation two. So number one, adjust your expectations of the unity you expect to feel in a healthy church. Number two, recognize what a church is. Jesus did not design our churches to be a national or ethnic or partisan or political or class gathering or the gathering of a political party. Rather, he designed to be gatherings of his followers from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Our churches are to be gatherings of former enemies learning to love one another, communities of political rivals. The local church is where our nations should begin beating our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks. What that means, friends, is you show up on Sunday morning looking to do that work. You, look, you show up as if we're almost looking for disagreement so you can beat those swords into shout, plowshares, those spears into pruning hooks. Christian, that, that's your job. That's what you're called to do. Number three, determine whether an issue is, is a straight line issue or a jagged line issue. I've already talked about that. Let me skip that. Recommendation number four, pastors especially, you need to be the biggest advocates of Christian freedom in your church. A way to work against legalistic fundamentalism and authoritarianism in your church and your leadership is to work at being an advocate of Christian freedom. I think all people are legalistic, not just Christians. We use some law to justify ourselves. But with with Christians, it it becomes a little bit more obvious because we use overtly religious language. And so the pastors in the room, that means one of your jobs especially is to help your people mature in Christ by smashing their sacred cows and being a promoter of Christian freedom. Number five, recognize the limits of Christian freedom. You don't want to be the guy saying, Christian freedom! In 1859 America, or 1939 Germany, there's a time to say freedom, but there's also a time to say, church, we must walk this way. Number six, expect politically frustrated members to find other churches and bless them when they go. Lower the stakes for them. It's okay. Christians are going to disagree. And so I'm talking to a member, and he continues to stumble over my preaching, what I'm, what I'm preaching, what I'm failing to preach. You need to say more about this. You need to say less of that. We're one in the gospel, but man, every Sunday I'm getting frustrated by you, pastor. Oh, brother, sister, I, I love you. I'd love you to stay here, but if, but if you're continuing to stumble over my preaching, maybe, maybe there's a church where you find yourself more in support, your conscience more in support with the, with the pastors, the elders of that church. And you know what? We're all playing for the same team. It's okay. I want you to feel free to go. You know, I'm not saying I want you to go. I'm just, there's freedom there. It's okay. And lower the stakes for everybody. It's not like a big failure. It's just like, yeah, we're, we're not sanctified perfectly yet. It's okay. Everybody calm down, right? As we, we decide to go to different churches. Recommendation number seven, finally, Rest in the certainty of Christ's victory. 
rest in the certainty of Christ's victory, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Christ. We do not need to fear and tremble as if Satan has finally, after all these millennia, managed to get the upper hand on the church. Oh no, through the same-sex marriage lobby, we're goners. And people around the world and throughout history have suffered far more than Christians in America do. And we don't assume Satan has the upper hand there, doesn't have it here. Christ's kingdom is in no danger of failing. And Christians, pastors especially, need to know this deep in our bones. There should not be anxiety or desperation in us as church leaders. There's never been a set of circumstances Christians cannot trust God through. Jesus beautifully trusted the Father through the cross for the joy set before him. And he calls us to do the same. Christ will prove trustworthy, friend, as we endure amidst disagreements. Let's pray. Father, when we disagree with one another on complex political issues, would you help us disagree in a way that pleases you? Give us courage to be faithfully countercultural and to rep- represent you truthfully to non-Christians especially. Please give us wisdom to love and forbear when we disagree about political judgments. Please unite us to accomplish the mission Christ gave the church. We ask this for the fame of your name. Amen. We hope you found this message a blessing to your life. More Columbia International University Chapel messages are available at iTunes and at podcast.ciu.edu. Learn more about CIU's undergraduate, seminary, and graduate programs at our website, ciu.edu. Columbia International University educates people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. Thank you for the opportunity to minister to you today.